What is up, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Dad Bod History. Uh, it's just me, Jake, tonight. No Eric, no Cameron, no Jeff, just me going solo. So we're going to see how this goes because, uh, I don't know, I've got a little bit prepped, but not, but not a lot. So hope you guys are doing well, and let's get into this. So I wanted to talk about the USS Texas. As you guys know, recently, the Texas is undergoing repairs, I believe uh, about August 28th or August 30th. Uh, it went under repair or it went, left its port in San Jacinto, Texas. It's on its way to Galveston. It was being tugged there. And um, to undergo these repairs, it's a floating battleship museum. What's interesting about it is that it is the last surviving dreadnought-style battleship, which is a battleship that started to come out in the early 1900s, was in prominence during World War One, and then kind of fell out of prominence after World War One in favor of the more modern, quote-unquote, battleships like the USS Missouri, um, which was more prominent in World War II. Uh, so Missouri, the, the Texas is the last dreadnought battleship. It's also the last surviving battleship that served in both World War One and World War Two, so it's kind of a pretty long career, and so I wanted to talk to you guys about that, and then we'll hit some other things. I wanted to talk a little bit about Pearl Harbor because um, that's been discussed on our TikToks and and some of our videos on TikTok. So I want to kind of get into that, um, some of the motivations for Pearl Harbor, whether or not FDR knew uh, that the Japanese were going to attack at Pearl Harbor, and. Um, why Japan decided to go forward with the attack, because it was not always a done deal. And, and so we'll get into that as well. Uh, but first, let's talk about the Texas. So it was originally launched in 1912, um, 573 feet long, 14 coal-fired boilers. Uh, so back when they were still using coal um, to fuel their ships, 37 guns, including 10 14-inch guns. So those are the big, big guns that were on the big turrets that would turn. Um, so those are the heavies. Uh, first saw action in 1914 in May uh, during the Tampico incident, and uh, it supported uh, the American forces there during the invasion of Veracruz, Mexico. Uh, but World War I um, is where it saw its first, I would say, prolonged action. And it was really uh, interesting because it fired the first American shots of World War I uh, on April 19, 1917. What happened was they were in Virginia Capes, Chesapeake Bay. And uh, the merchant vessel, the Mongolia, was being escorted by or being, I guess, escorted, being escorted by uh, the Texas and the Mongolia spots a German U-boat's periscope. And so they send that off to the Texas. The Texas sees the, the U-boat, fires some shots at it and prevents a torpedo attack on, on the Mongolia, the merchant vessel. And. Those were the first American shots fired in World War One. Obviously, the war had been raging on for close to three years at this point, uh, but America was a latecomer. They joined in 1917, and they officially fired their first shots. Was the USS Texas Inter interwar period? So, but and so when they were during World War One, largely the Texas was an escort vehicle, a convoy vehicle. So it was. Is bringing soldiers and um, cargo and material to and from America to the European theater to England, and then in the European theater was escorting ships to and from England um, and to France and, and that sort of thing. They didn't really see any combat because 
largely uh, the English Navy at this point was the largest Navy in the world. The German Navy had the second largest Navy um, or second most powerful Navy, but they, I think, had maybe one skirmish, one naval battle pretty early on in the war. And then basically after that, the German Navy just kept um, kept in, in port because they knew if they were to try to engage uh, the English Navy uh, at this time, the, the UK's Navy at this time, they, they wouldn't have a chance. Um, they might, you know, they might they get one shot basically at it. And so it wasn't worth Germany sacrificing their entire Navy to engage in this big battle um, with the Allies. So all that said, the Texas was mainly on convoy or escort duty. Uh, and they were the U-boats. They still had to keep an eye out for the U-boats and, and stuff like that. But as far as ship-to-ship battles, that, that really wasn't a thing that the Texas partook in in World War One. After World War One, uh, in the interwar period between World War One and World War Two, the Texas is refitted. They removed their torpedo tubes. They had 10 anti-aircraft guns because now aircraft or air warfare is becoming a dominant style of war uh, prior to... World War One, the idea of the air being, you know, warfare taking to the sky, so to speak, um, was still in its infancy. And so uh, they didn't really th- at, at the beginning of World War One, they didn't see the need for a bunch of anti-aircraft stuff because it just wasn't as relevant. But as the war developed, the need for anti-aircraft, not only on the ground, but on your ships was more and more important. So they replaced their torpedo tubes with anti-aircraft guns. And uh, and then Orlikon cannons. They added um, 44 Orlikon cannons, which looked like the big 50 cal cannons that you know you could see people on the sides of the boat shooting, um, trying to hit you know Japanese fighters and stuff like that. Uh, if you ever saw the movie Pearl Harbor, uh, and the guys, you know, I think it's Cuba Gooding Jr. He shoots down one of the zeros. I think that's what the Orlikon cannon is. It looks very similar to that, at least. Um, but anyway, so it was refitted during the interwar period. World War II hits, and uh, again, the Texas begins as a convoy escort, so transporting people to and from America to the European theater, uh, to England specifically, and supporting Marines and troops to Panama and then Sierra Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone is in Africa, um, as well as troops and cargo to the United Kingdom. And then they got their first real action in Operation Torch. And Operation Torch is interesting because on November 8th, 1942, what's going on here is um, Mussolini, you know, with the help of Hitler, but Mussolini in Italy had taken over a bunch of North Africa. Uh, And then Germany and Germany had conquered uh, much of France and the rest of France that didn't get conquered became Vichy or Vichy France, which basically surrendered to Germany and fell under their power. Uh, And so the French colonies in North Africa, specifically in Morocco and Algiers, were technically for a time there fighting on behalf of the Germans, on behalf of the Axis powers. And so Operation Torch was a operation by the Allies, the United Kingdom and America to retake the French colonies for the Allies and remove those colonies from German and Italian fascist control, but vis-a-vis the French. Um, And so this happened on November 8th, 1942 is when it started. Uh, 
the Texas part partook in the bombardment of Port Laote in French Morocco, supporting the Allied invasion. So they bombarded the the French um, positions there and allowed the Allies to storm the beaches. What's interesting is that a young Walter Cronkite, now if you know who he is, Walter Cronkite was the voice and face of American news throughout much of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. I believe he's on CBS is where he was the guy. But on the evening news, Walter Cronkite was whatever Walter Cronkite said, that was the news. Like that's what was happening in the world. There was no Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or Newsmax, you know, debating and and doing commentary 24-7. It was Walter Cronkite. He told you, here's what happened today. Have a good night. That was it. Well, he was on the Texas during Operation Torch. So he saw the bombardment of French Morocco firsthand, saw the Allied invasion of that area firsthand. After Operation Torch happens, he heads back, or the the Texas, not just him, and the Massachusetts, two battleships, head back to Virginia, uh, I guess to refit, maybe get more supplies, but they're heading back to America. Walter Cronkite's on the Texas. There's a rival reporter on the Massachusetts. Once they get in sight of land, Walter Cronkite asks them, let me make sure I have the right plane, if I have it here. I don't have the right plane. But there's there's a few planes on the Texas. And so Cronkite says, hey, can you fly me off the Texas and get me to Virginia so that I can touch down first and I can report on Operation Torch to America before the guy, the reporter that's on the Massachusetts. So, and they did, they let him fly. So he flew from the Texas. Once they were inside of land, flew from the Texas to Virginia. He reported on Operation Torch, gave the first uncensored quote unquote um, broadcast on the success of Operation Torch. Uh, and I don't remember who the guy on the Massachusetts was, but that was kind of a big part of Walter Cronkite's break is that, you know, he was an embedded reporter during World War II. And so he got this big scoop and this big coverage on the success of Operation Torch. And then he went on to become the face of news and the face of what was happening in the world in America for the next three generate or 30 years or so, three decades. So that's kind of a fun little tidbit that Texas has, um, that they had Walter Cronkite there. The reason Walter Cronkite is Walter friggin' Cronkite. There we go. We got there. Now, the Texas' next action is Operation Overlord. And if you don't know that, it's more colloquially known as D-Day. But D-Day is just one day of Operation Overlord. So Operation Overlord is the Allied invasion of France, of northern France specifically. And so D-Day, June 6, 1944, is when it commenced. Uh, but it obviously lasted many days and weeks after that. Um, now, what's interesting here is that on June 6, 1944, during the initial assault, the Texas closed within 3,000 meters of the water's edge at Omaha Beach. And that's so, that's very, very close. And the Texas and some other ships, but the Texas being that close to the beach was in danger of grounding and actually getting stuck on the beach, getting beached. And, but they got that close that they could help assist the Allied invasion uh, at Omaha Beach. They provided artillery support for the Allied forces, firing sniper and machine gun nests, along with an anti-aircraft battery. 
on June 7th, and, and at, at this time on June 6th, when they're doing this, the allies, there's a, a pocket of allies that are struggling and they're not making headway. And so that's why the Texas moves in so close is that they could hit these nests and these uh, German emplacements and neutralize them so that the, the invasion force could move farther up on the beachhead. On June 7th, a group of rangers was isolated on Point du Hoc. And so the Texas actually obtained two landing craft and sent them to the beach to relieve those rangers, get a bunch of their wounded off, and then give them more ammo and supplies to continue fighting. And so that was another, this is all part of Operation Overlord. And then finally the rangers, um, you know, they got like, I think it was what, 30 rangers or something like that. And they also got a bunch of German prisoners, brought them onto the Texas. Of the 30 rangers that were wounded, I think one of them died on the operating table on the Texas, but the rest of them lived. So a big part of the success of those rangers on Point du Hoc was because of the Texas. So you got this old battleship from World War One in these kind of key moments, in these key operations all around the theaters of World War II. On June 15th, now this is where it gets real story, and this is almost apocryphal. I mean, it happened, but you're here, and you're like, that really? They did that? So on June 15th, at this point, the Allies had moved pretty far inland, so far inland that they were now out of the range of the Texas's 14-inch, the big guns. Uh, but they still had targets that needed to be hit by bombardment. And so the, on the Texas... Uh, the Texas couldn't reach it with their guns. They couldn't quite get the lift, the elevation that they needed to hit these targets that were miles inland on France to help assist the Allied invasion and, and the invasion forces. And so what the Texas did is the captain flooded the starboard the torpedo blisters. So he, the starboard is the right side of the ship. So he flooded the starboard per torpedo blisters uh, so that the ship would actually tilt two degrees farther so they could turn their guns and they'd get a bigger arc and so they could lob their shells farther inland into France on June 15th. They did this on and they hit their targets. So they found these targets. So they basically intentionally flooded part of their ship so they can more accurately lean back and then fire their shells and they got the loft that they needed to get the next mile or kilometer or two farther to help the Allies. I don't know about you, but that is like the most Napoleon Dynamite, Uncle Rico, I bet I can throw this football over that mountain moment that I've read in quite a while. Like, that's just awesome. Like, there's no way you guys can, you guys can't hit that far inland. And, and the captain of the Texas is like, hold my beer. It's like, flood the ship. We're doing this, baby. And it worked. It worked. And so that was an integral part of D-Day or Operation Overlord. Again, Texas, it's old cold fire battleship from World War One is just making a name for itself in World War Two. All right. So their next kind of action is the Battle of Cherbourg on June 25th. The Texas, along with the USS Arkansas and Nevada, bombarded German positions during the Battle of Cherbourg. They took a three hour bombardment that they're just trading fire back and forth with these German emplacements um, on land. At one point, uh, the Germans um, hit the Texas on its conning tower. And from what I understand, the conning tower, it's kind of like the spy tower so they can kind of see out and see what, you know, on the horizon. So it's elevated 
so they can kind of get a look at what they're seeing and, and firing at. So the Germans hit that, hit the conning tower, mm-hmm. knock it out of commission. I believe one person dies, about eight more are injured. Texas keeps firing, hits a German gun embankment, blows up the big gun there. They take another hit um, directly into the plank or on the deck of the ship. Luckily, that shell didn't explode. It was a dud. And that shell, they actually have it. I think it's actually part of the museum of the Texas now. So they they took the dud shell. They took a photo next to it. We'll get that photo up here um, for the episode. But of the, the admiral and the captain standing next to this dud. But that shell still exists. They disarmed it, obviously, and then put it on display at the museum. After that, um, they got two more conflicts on the other side of the world that they partook in. They're two very famous conflicts. One, the Battle of Iwo Jima or the invasion of Iwo Jima. This happened on February 16th to 19th on 1945. They bombarded the island for three days prior to the assault and provided fire support to the invasion forces until March 7th. That three-day bombardment, though, that was like the bare minimum that the allies wanted they originally requested a 10-day bombardment um but the admiral in charge basically said no we don't have enough ammo for that how about we give you three days and so the 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 marines that wanted to invade they wanted that 10-day bombardment to neutralize any japanese forces on the island of iwo jima now the island of iwo jima is the one where the marines famously raised their flag on top of the hill after successfully creating that beachhead but it was very fierce fighting and the japanese were not giving up and so a three-day bombardment while it sounds like a lot the weather was bad two of those three days and so really they didn't get the hours that they needed to effectively bombard the island in preparation for the landing forces onto the island and so the texas they did partake in that bombardment but Possibly part of the reason the fighting on Iwo Jima was so particularly fierce and thousands of Americans died and ten, I think 20,000 Japanese died, but thousands and thousands of Marines died, thousands and thousands of Japanese soldiers died. A big part of why the fighting was so hard is because the bombardment wasn't sufficient enough. And so the Japanese forces that were placed along that beach, they basically turned that island into a fortress waiting for this invasion to happen. And the big guns on these battleships couldn't neutralize it in three days. So all that to say, Texas partook in that, but it's kind of a black mark on that otherwise incredible battle is that the Americans, because they didn't get the 10-day bombardment that they needed, the fighting was probably a lot worse than it would have been had they gotten that 10 days. Moving on, they also partook in the Operation Detachment, which, or that, sorry, Operation Detachment is the Battle of Iwo Jima, and then Operation Iceberg was the Battle of Okinawa. Okinawa, that was from March 26th to 31st. Uh, They did the pre-landing bombardment for that whole week. And then from April 1st, when the landings occurred, the Texas provided, again, fire support as the Marines and soldiers were storming the beaches there. And they stayed until about May 14th, uh, at Okinawa until she f- departed for the Philippines. And that was pretty much the end of her service in World War II when she went to the Philippines because after May, the war was pretty much over. Uh, Germany was, I think they had surrendered. They were just about to surrender. And at this point, 
the Americans were prepping up for an invasion of mainland Japan, which obviously didn't take place after Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August. So that by that point, the Texas's service was done. And after the war, when the war was concluded, uh, the Texas shipped soldiers home. So it became a convoy ship again, taking soldiers back home. But that was it. That, that was the Texas's service. And then after that, I believe by 1947, she'd been decommissioned and then she was turned into a floating battleship museum. She was the first ever permanent battleship museum. There's another one that was in Oregon, like in the 1920s to 1950s, but it wasn't a permanent one. So this was the first ever. So it's the oldest floating battleship museum in America. Again, I said it's the oldest dreadnought class battleship. It's the last surviving one. I don't think there is another one in the world from England, Germany. None of they don't exist anymore except for the Texas. So it's a specific piece of history in, in not just American naval history, but in world naval history. Because those dreadnought battleships were game changers. They were the first. I mean, there was pre-dreadnoughts, which if you read the Russo-Japanese War, um, and the, obviously Britain and European powers had these as well. But there was pre-dreadnoughts. But the pre-dreadnoughts were still like holding some vestiges of the old sail and old wood framed or wood ships um, that they had had. They, they still had a lot of vestiges like that where by the time you got to the dreadnought class, that's where you get the idea that you need really big guns because those are what's going to be most effective. And then the smaller guns are, they're not vestigial, but they don't have the importance that they used to have. If that makes sense. The big guns, and a lot of this was learned during the Russo-Japanese War, the big guns were what was decisive in the naval battles of the Russo-Japanese War. And so then that got incorporated. So those are the pre-dreadnought battleships. And then that's what got incorporated into the first dreadnought class battleships, which has then evolved into the World War II battleships like the USS Missouri, the Arizona, the Wisconsin, those big pounders, those big brawlers that... that the United States built. Uh, and so the point being is that dreadnought class battleship was instrumental in naval advancement and naval technology. And even though we don't really use battleships anymore, they were essential during World War II specifically, uh, but in parts of World War I as well. So anyway, she's part of that oldest dreadnought class battleship, oldest floating uh, battleship museum in America. She's the only surviving ship that served in both World War I and World War II, at least for America. Uh, maybe other nations had them that survived, but in America, the Texas is it. And so she's this piece of history that, that's 100 years old now, and uh, it's fallen apart. And so it's got this big hole in the hull, and it's rusting, and it just suffered from years of neglect. Uh, they did do some repairs in the 80s and refitted it and replaced just literally hundreds of thousands of pounds of steel. Uh, but then another four decades of neglect and the same problems creeped back up. And so Texas is now in Galveston getting retrofitted and, and getting taken care of and refurbished so that she can last for another hundred years and possibly have a new home somewhere else in Texas, maybe in Galveston, uh, maybe in San Jacinto was where she was maybe somewhere else. I don't know, but um, it's kind of, it's just a cool story because you know, we, we talk a lot about 
these big battles in World War II, in any war, but in World War II, you know, Operation Overlord, D-Day, Operation Torch, um, Battle of Iwo Jima, Okinawa, right? Like we talk about these and we say like, well, here's how many people are on this side and here's how many people are on this side and these guns and it lasted these days and that's all really cool. But then you have this one battleship that saw all of it. Like, that's amazing. This one battleship from World War One saw all these momentous, and not it just saw them, partook in them, partook in all these momentous events around World War II, around the world, literally. And you want to preserve that as much as you can. And you can't preserve everything. I understand that. Uh, but you want to preserve what you can. And so you can say, this ship saw the world change and partook in moments that changed the world. And I think that's amazing. And not just the ship, but the men on that ship, the people that built that ship and the people um, that are preserving that ship today, they're all partaking in that continued history for the Texas. And I, I just think that's amazing. And I wish when we talk about history, we would try to grasp those specific moments within the larger picture, those specific ideas or the specific people that take place within this much larger picture and, and just say what they did was incredible. What this person did or what this ship did or what this small group of people did in this grand world changing event, what they did was special. And, and so we don't forget that. I think that's such a cool thing that we have an opportunity to do with the Texas. And yeah, so it, it's being repaired. And I think that's great because it's going to preserve that history, hopefully for another 100, 110 years, if not longer. Which, while we're talking about Pearl Harbor, so let's move on to a new or World War II. Let's talk about Pearl Harbor. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about at least the outset of America's participation in World War II. So as we know, the United States did not enter World War II right away. So as, as war was raging on in Europe from 1939, 40, 41, the United States was staying out of it. The American public didn't want to be involved in another European war. That was not something the American public, and I believe the polls were like something like 80, 90% of Americans did not want to get involved in World War II. And it's like, that's a European problem. That is not our problem. We do not want to deal with that. We'll, we'll, we'll favor a side. So we want, you know, France and England and by extension, the Soviet Union to win um, because they are more closely aligned with France and England for sure. But we don't want to fight. And so, you know, they partook in the Lend-Lease program and, and helped um, supply the allies with material and, you know, with equipment and use their manufacturing might to support a winner in that conflict. But they didn't want to fight Germany. They certainly didn't want to fight Japan. They're like, this isn't our conflict. But by 1941, because not only of the Lend-Lease program, but America had put an embargo on the empire of Japan, specifically an oil embargo, and uh, I believe steel was also embargoed as well but specifically an oil embargo. And so Japan had this war machine that had swept through much of the Southeast Asian islands, the Mandates, the Kuril Islands, and 
Korea had been under their control, I think, since like 1905, 1908. And now much of Manchuria or China was being conquered by Japan. And many of them were being slaughtered uh, as they were being conquered. And so Japan at one point had an empire of 400 million people under its control. That's massive. I think it was the biggest group or biggest nation or empire in the world at that time. So nobody else had more people. America certainly didn't. Russia didn't have more people. Even England, which had these massive colonies from everywhere, I don't think they had more people than Japan did. At that time, Japan had the largest single, by people, largest single empire in the world. And what they were doing specifically in China was really upsetting to the allies or to America. And so part of this oil embargo was to get Japan to throttle down their war machine, literally starve them of fuel because Japan didn't have the oil resources that they needed to continue expanding their territory. And so the United States under Roosevelt put an embargo on Japan to stop them, to slow them down so they could come back to the table and they could negotiate and get back to a diplomatic solution to stop Japan's expansionism. And Japan and, and the United States tried to negotiate for months and months during 1941, but eventually, yeah, the Japanese basically made a decision some weeks before December 7th, uh, and then made it official, I think on December 5th, was when they pulled out their delegation from the United States and said, there's no point in discussing, we're not going to get any farther. And so on December 5th is when they made the official, we're going to go attack Pearl Harbor, but they had been planning it for weeks. Uh, Yamamoto was actually against going to war. Uh, Admiral Yamamoto was against going to war with, with uh, the United States because he thought, we can't, we just can't win. We can't keep up with their industrial might. So he didn't want to do this. But once the, the government basically said, we're going to do this, you need to plan for it. That's what he did. He spent the next days and weeks planning this surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. Now, what's interesting is that on TikTok, we had some videos and comments going back and forth on if FDR knew that Japan was going to attack Pearl Harbor. And that's a that's like a conspiracy or it's a fringe theory that has some merit, I think. It, it does have some merit in that um, there's a general, or an, I'm sorry, an Admiral Richardson who was an aide to the Secretary of the Navy, I believe, and he had some real reservations about leaving the Pacific Fleet in Hawaii. He's like, we cannot leave them. We're, they're in harm's way. This is all before Pearl Harbor had happened. And so Roosevelt dismissed this guy. He dismissed Richardson. He said, yeah, we're not, if that's your attitude, you're, you're out of here. At least that's the story that's being presented to us on this theory that Roosevelt knew. And so Richardson saying, well, you're leaving the fleet in harm's way. And basically the inference is that Roosevelt left them in harm's way on purpose so that Japan would attack them so that the United States would have a reason to go into war with Japan and enter the war with Europe. That's the theory. And so Richardson was dismissed because he disagreed with Roosevelt on leaving the Navy at Pearl Harbor or leaving the Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. And obviously Japan did attack Pearl Harbor. And so people will say, well, let's connect these dots and see that means Roosevelt knew that this was going to happen. 
Now, somebody asked in one of the comments says, well, I'd like to hear the Japanese side of this. And so it's interesting because if you read the Japanese accounts, Yamamoto, who planned this whole surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, he was very, very cautious about letting the United States catch wind of what what the Japanese were trying to do. And so what he did um, was he, when the ships, he combined them all into one basically massive carrier fleet. And they had like 350, maybe 500 planes. So they basically had a floating airfield that they could field hundreds of planes to do this attack on Pearl Harbor. So he combined them into one massive fleet. But he kept sending like false signals um, and like false radio communications so that the allies or the Americans that were listening wouldn't pick up on what was happening. And so they moved them up north towards like the Kuril Islands, possibly by Sakhalin, but I believe it's the Kuril Islands, to get ready to go from the northern end of the Japanese islands to the east towards Hawaii and then back down south. So you can make this big arching um, loop from Japan over and then down to Hawaii for their surprise attack. Now the Japanese, or sorry, the Americans suspected that Japan was going to have some sort of response to this oil embargo. They're like, we know something's going to happen, but we don't know where exactly. And they thought it was going to be in the Philippines because the Americans had some bases in the Philippines. So logic would deem that those bases in the Philippines are a lot closer to Japan than Hawaii. So why wouldn't you attack the bases that are closest to you? And so that's what the Americans thought. And so they actually sent a lieutenant and he had a B-24. His name is Ted Faulkner. And they wanted to fly him to the Philippine Islands and do basically recon. So he's going to fly over Japanese controlled territory, thousands of miles, uh, refueling along the way, I guess, wherever he could. Uh, and get reconnaissance photos of a possible Japanese buildup in the Philippines for an attack on the American bases there. And this was like on December 5th that he arrived in Hawaii to go fly out to go do that thing. So I don't think he actually even completed the flight from what I remember. But the, the decision to hit Pearl Harbor also happened on December 5th. So the Japanese were going to attack. They attacked. They wanted to attack on the night uh, I believe the 6th, but they couldn't do it. And here's why. So the torpedoes that they had uh, from these planes, um, they sank to a depth of 65 feet. Well, the ships that were in harbor, in Pearl Harbor, were 40 feet. So they could only, so the, the torpedoes, they could they they wouldn't work, basically. They would hit the ground or they'd hit the seafloor before they'd hit any ships. And so what they did was they took these pieces of wood, and this like, they're like ready to go. Like they're ready to go hit Pearl Harbor. Their, their fleet is anchored off. They're ready. And they take these torpedoes. So they add these wooden fins that elevates their torpedoes to get to 40 feet. And then from there, they're able to drop them out of the mouth of the harbor. They go in, hit the ships, and commence the attack. And then obviously all the bombers and the, the planes that come in and, and attack the ships of Pearl Harbor. But all that comes to this conclusion is, did Roosevelt know that Japan was going to attack? I think the United States, and by extension, obviously, Roosevelt 
had an expectation that Japan was going to respond to the United States embargo and the lack of a diplomatic solution to the Japanese um, encroachment on all these other areas in, in the Southeast Asia and in the Pacific. However, it sure doesn't look like that they knew Japan was going to attack Pearl Harbor. One, Japanese naval warfare prior to this had been very defensive, so they had their aircraft carries kind of in defensive positions around um, the Southeast Asia and around the Pacific. So that Yamamoto consolidated that into one large strike force, basically, was against the expectation of how Japan would behave in a naval warfare. Another problem is, is that they, they thought Japan was going to attack the Philippines, not attack Hawaii. And so from there, they had two false assumptions. One of those false assumptions was, one, where Japan was going to attack. They thought the Philippines because it was closer to Japan. And then two, the fact that they would organize their entire aircraft carrier into group into one fleet and attack Pearl Harbor. And so they just weren't expecting the response that they did. And I don't even know if they were expecting an, a military response, but they were expecting some sort of response. And, and so you could say, yeah, Roosevelt knew or thought something was going to happen, but it doesn't mean he was hoping for it. And I think something that's interesting here, and it's going to kind of segue into my third topic, is the idea of embargoes and tariffs and sanctions working as a means to deter an aggressive power. And the reason I bring that up is because Roosevelt and the United States put this oil embargo on Japan, right? They did. And they did it as a means of forcing a diplomatic solution with Japan to get them to stop encroaching on all these other territories, get them to give up some of their claims on mainland China, and to come back to the negotiating table. Well, that didn't work, obviously. Japan had no intention of stopping their conquests, embargo or not. And they figured, well, if we're embargoed, we'll figure something else out. We can knock the United States out of this war before it even starts, or at least delay them and their counterattack long enough that we can accomplish our goals, then you know we'll be in a good spot. Here we go. So, uh, so did Roosevelt know or anticipate the attack on Pearl Harbor? So I don't think so. I think Japan, one, absolutely tried to keep it a secret, and it sure looks like they did by the miscommunication. Um, when they were approaching, they had complete radio silence between the ships so that there was absolutely no chance of any of their communication being intercepted. Um, and then as well, they had dummy communications being released from the land, from you know Japan's islands and held territories, making it seem like nothing was changing. And so it sure seemed like Japan did a very good job concealing their movements. Also, there's no benefit into losing half of your Pacific fleet, even to enter the war. If they had known Japan was coming, they still could have prepared for that attack and if Japan had come and attacked them, knowing, you know that that you know the people on the ships were ready to fight instead of just being destroyed, uh, you still could have entered the war because Japan had made an overt attack on America, and that would have been justification to enter the war. So you don't need it to be a surprise attack to enter the war. All that to say, no, I don't think Japan, or I don't think Roosevelt knew that Japan was going to do what they did. Now, he thought that they might have had a response, but he doesn't know what they, they were going to do that exactly. Now, that gets back to my question on, because somebody brought this up, basically, 
the oil embargo didn't work. It didn't stop Japan from attacking the United States. It did not stop their imperial ambitions. So why do it, basically? Um, and that brings me to another question, because at the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a big part prior to that invasion happening is that the United States said, look, Russia, and not just the United States, but other members of the world, said, look, Russia, if you do this, we're going to sanction you. And we're going to sanction you with sanctions that we've never even done before. We're going to totally isolate you from the global economy. They kicked them out of SWIFT. They put sanctions on all sorts of oligarchs. They put sanctions on Putin. They put sanctions on the Russian people. Um, they Companies pulled out. Uh, the American or Western companies that McDonald's left. Uh, I think Ikea left. Like All these companies that have been establishing a presence in Russia for three decades since the fall of the Berlin Wall and since the end of the Cold War suddenly just left. And so all these sanctions happened. But that didn't stop Putin, right? They didn't stop Russia from invading Ukraine. And I remember shortly after, somebody asked, uh, I don't know if it was Peter Ducey, but some reporter asked him, asked Joe Biden, said, well, the sanctions didn't work. And Joe Biden, I don't know what his, maybe it's just because he's old, but like his answer wasn't really great. He's like, well, we knew the sanctions weren't going to stop Russia. It's like, well, then why did you do them? <laughs> like, if, if you knew it wasn't going to stop them, why did you do them? And so it kind of raises this question, like, are sanctions a useful tool in these diplomatic contests with between these belligerent powers? Now, on smaller countries or smaller powers, they might be useful to achieve a goal, but it seems like they're not, or they don't prevent the thing from happening that we're worried about. In this case, the invasion of Ukraine, or in the case of World War II, the continued aggression of Japan. So if they don't work, then why do we do them? And I think they actually, there is a purpose here, is if we tell a nation, you need to stop your behavior, and if you don't, the cost is going to come to you in form of sanctions or embargoes or tariffs. And if they continue to do that bad behavior, we need to follow through with that to make it sure it seems like, hey, we're following through on our word, we're doing what we said we would do. Now, it doesn't mean that they're going to stop because they might make a, an economic decision and say it's worth the economic pain from this embargo or these sanctions to accomplish our other goals. But they still need to feel that pain. And also, you don't want the, the next step from we're discussing something diplomatically to armed conflict. There has to be a middle step in between there or steps if you want to look at it that way, between diplomatic solution, armed conflict. And if those middle steps are sanctions, then we need to take those middle steps, even if they don't necessarily work, because we need to show that we're exhausting every option we have to resolve this peacefully before it goes to war. Now, it's just a thought I had, because there's a parallel here between World War II and Japan's aggression in the Pacific, and aggression with America specifically, and... Russia's aggression with Ukraine, because we knew Russia was going to do this. They had these ambitions. They had started by annexing Crimea in 2014, and then they started by supporting the separatist republics in the Donbass. And we kept saying, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that. And Russia's basically like, stop me. And then we're like, all right, well, if you invade Ukraine, then there's going to be these sanctions that come. And Russia basically says, it's worth it. It's worth the economic pain if we can conquer all of Ukraine. But we still need to take that step. We couldn't immediately go from 
we're going to sanction you to we're going to go into a hot war with Russia. Because I don't think anybody wants that. And I know the sanctions are hurting Russia, and they are impairing their ability to wage war in Ukraine. In addition to the aid, and we've, re, we've restarted the Lend-Lease program, which is another World War II era um, act. So we've restarted the Lend-Lease program. We've sanctioned the belligerent, all in an effort to avoid American troops, American soldiers, American equipment and blood and money going overseas to fight in another foreign war. And I think that's an appropriate step. But you can also see the frustration when you take that step and it doesn't get you the result that you want. And I think there's a great parallel here between Japan's belligerence in World War II and Russia's belligerence right now. And although the sanctions don't seem to have had the effect that we wanted them to, they were still important to take. Or at least that's what I think. And maybe I'm wrong, but... You know, it's a good discussion to have because, you know, when people say, you know, we got to learn from history or we're doomed to repeat it. Well, here's why. Because it's not, a lot of things don't change. Motivations don't really change in history. The same motivations that prompted people to war in the 1930s and 40s were power, greed, xenophobia, racism, um, are the same things that prompted people to war hundreds of years ago in um, and then in ancient Rome and in, you know the Mongolian Empire, all the motivations are basically the same, and they're the same today. And so you can learn from those motivations from then and, and apply them to today. It's not like it's anything new. The technology may change, the cultural norms may be different, but largely it's all the same. Um, which is another reason I don't like people saying, "Well, that was a different time period." Like. Like, we can excuse the, the, the horrors of the past because it happened in the past and say, well, that was a different time period. They viewed things differently back then. It's like, well, yeah, but they didn't view them that differently. Like, th that was not a new thing. Like, most famously, the talk on slavery. And when we criticize the founding fathers or American presidents and we say, well, look, they were slave owners, they were racist, they were white supremacists. And then people say, well, they were from a different time period. It's like, yeah, but there was abolitionists from that time period too. It's not like everybody thought in World War or in, in the Civil War or prior to that in, in the antebellum um, that everyone thought that it was okay, slavery was fine. No, there was abolition. Absolutely, there was abolitionists, you know, fighting the cause of freedom and saying it doesn't matter what time period it is, slavery is wrong. Treating our African brothers and sisters like this is wrong. Holding them in bondage is wrong. That was the debate they were having back then. So people weren't excusing it back then. Why do we excuse it today? Why do we excuse our founding fathers' poor behavior today? We shouldn't because there's people back then that didn't do it. And it, it just bothers me when people try to use the, the the past as a safety blanket or as a as a catch-all excuse for terrible behavior and terrible things that happened saying well it was a different time period yeah but it wasn't that different the principles that america is founded on are principles that existed thousands of years ago okay the idea of individual liberty and individual value are not new concepts that were invented by america the idea of owning property is not a new thing that's existed for thousands of years. The, the idea to, to freedom of speech is something that's existed for thousands of years. And, and that, that you can silence that by 
government force is not a new thing either. These are all concepts that we've wrestled with from thousands of years all across the world. They're not new. So don't give the past or the people of the past a pass because it was back then and they thought differently than we do. They really didn't. Not that much. Not not on the main things, at least. Now, yeah, there's differences, absolutely. I'm not saying there aren't. But on these things, on these major issues, when you when you talk about moral authority, because if, if it is, if it was just in the past and we shouldn't count what happened in the past, well, then you got to disregard basically all classical thought. you got to disregard the Bible. you got to disregard Confucianism. you know, you got to disregard everything because that all happened in the past, even though those are pillars of modern society. Well, they don't count because they were back then. So either they don't count because they were back then, or they do count, and we need to use the lessons from back then and apply them to today. And that's kind of the point I'm getting to somehow. I don't know how I got there, what I'm really talking about. I'm a little, I'm a little tired, uh, and I'm doing this by myself, and my phone restarted twice. But anyway, you understand what I'm saying, is that you can't excuse the people of the past by just saying they're from the past. That's, that's the point I'm making. If there is a moral argument to be made today, there's a pretty good chance that same moral argument or something very similar was being made back then, whenever then was. And so you can judge people on the arguments made back then, and then you can judge them on the arguments from today. And that's totally fine to make those comparisons and say, well, they, this is how they were different back then. But this is also how they were the same. And and let's draw from that and learn from that. Instead of just, well, it's back then. It doesn't count. It does count. Everything counts. History is everything and everything counts. So, anyway, thanks for joining me on this kind of meandering, little bit ranty dad bod history. I'm Jake. You guys have a great day in history. 